Father, thank you for your great faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that though we come into this building with many anxieties, Father, many doubts, many troubles, Lord, there is always cause for rejoicing in Christ. We thank you as we were reminded that if you never gave one more gift to your people, Father, you would have already done infinitely beyond what we deserve, God. And you are so gracious to shower us with your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your word and your many great promises that it contains. Would you please refresh our hearts and our minds this morning in you, in your Son? Would your Spirit illuminate these things, Father, that we might understand and take rest in what you've done? Lord, please speak to us now. For Christ's name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning. We'll make our way through the first 18 verses if the Lord wills. Hopefully I'll get you all out of here by noon today. Just kidding. John chapter 5 will be opening up. As you guys turn there, just give us a little bit of introduction. This chapter, John 5... Unfortunately, and fortunately for us, marks the beginning of John's record of the mounting hostility toward Jesus by the Jews. And as Pastor Rob's pointed out in the past, when we read the Jews, it's not necessarily all Jews at the time. It's particularly the leadership, those who are in positions of authority and power who want to maintain that position. And so the hostility is going to continue, or it's going to begin building here, and it's going to reach its peak throughout the Gospel of John because of Jesus' works, and even more so because of the things that he's going to say about himself. He is working, as we'll read in today's passage. He is completing the work that the Father has given him to do, and in doing so, in making himself known to the Jews and making himself known to the world, his authority, his power, his mission, his deity, all of these things are going to stir up the Jews to put him to death, as they were destined to do. But this text in particular, John 5, 1 through 18 today, this is the first time that John records their murderous intent toward him after he performs another miracle on the Sabbath day. They take great offense at that. And uh, if you need a title for this one, if you're note takers, uh, God is working. God is working. This may even be, I guess, kind of a part one because uh, next week we're going to be continuing in the same vein. But God is working, part one. At this point, Jesus has already displayed his omniscience He's already displayed his command over the laws of nature, right? Water into wine. He's already displayed his ability to heal illness without even touching or seeing or being near the sick person. But all the while, right, he's not just doing these things for the sake of doing them. He's using these encounters with individuals and groups that John recalls for us to reveal precious truth about himself. He's revealing things about himself that we cling to for hope in this very day. He's revealing about himself. He's revealing truth about the Father. He's revealing truth about the Spirit and the kingdom of God, and so on and so on. And he does this once again here in John 5, where we see another seemingly obscure interaction, right? We see these seem like just the most random and, and untimely and unlikely conversations that are being had here, but God is using it. Another interaction that leads to Jesus speaking to the Jews at length about himself and his divine relationship to the Father. And so the first 18 verses really set this up. So today we're going to be kind of in story mode, and next week we'll be kind of in dissertation mode where Jesus just gives us all kinds of information about himself. So this morning... He encounters a lame man, and no, not lame like, you know, flooded pants and, you know, goofy shoes, though some of us do come into the building that way. God has received us, amen? 
Jesus encounters a crippled man. That's what's meant by a lame man, a crippled man. And he performs another miraculous healing. <laughs> Mike, not, Mike never shows up in that, in that array. Uh, <clears throat> so we'll be, we'll be following the narrative for the majority of the morning. And the story here is what builds up to the revelation that Jesus is going to reveal knowledge about himself. And as always, guys, when we're moving through narrative, there are just an abundance of places that we could detour at length and get totally sidetracked. But I truly believe the heart of this message, uh, which is where Christ speaks of himself, is in the last couple verses. So we'll make our way there. With me? All right. So remember, we're coming off the heels of Jesus healing the official son back in Galilee, right? A gracious sign that ended up bringing saving faith to this official and his household. And now it says he is back in Jerusalem, which as we know, if you've read through the Gospels, often means trouble, it often means opposition, it often means conflict. And this interaction today and this healing goes down very differently from last week. So let's get into our new setting here in verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So all we're told is after this. We can, we can speculate, we can use inference to try and figure out exactly how much time, but we don't know. Sometime after, and we also are not told specifically which feast this was that he had gone up to Jerusalem for. Nevertheless, we know that he went for this feast, and so it very well may have been one of the three what we call pilgrimage feasts that the Jews would participate in. That's the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we will not be spending an hour getting into all of those. We can do that another time. Unfortunately, I know many of you are disappointed, but these were three pilgrimage feasts where Jews uh, would travel to Jerusalem and uh, would involve offerings at the temple. So that's why they're there. And now, verse 2, more specifically, our lovely media team has some slides for us over here. I'm going to read verse 2 and 3. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So, my friends, I have been given the great privilege of using the anointed laser pointer this morning. <laughs> That's right. So, let's see. Can we get the map of Jerusalem one? This one. Okay. Thank you guys very much. So, it says, by the Sheep Gate. So, if you take a look here, hopefully you can see over my noggin. Here is the Temple Mount the extended temple area, and if you see right there, it says Sheep Gate, right? Right here, and then you'll see here the Pool of Bethesda. So this is just a kind of a, a big overview so you can see where the Sheep Gate is located. So the Sheep Gate is what it sounds like. It's a gate for sheep to enter into the temple area. So sheep that would be sacrificed would come in through here. They had their own VIP entrance. So if you can show us the next slide, number two... Uh, the other one, sorry. <laughs> okay, so here's the Temple Mount. Here would be the gate uh, along this wall here. And then over here we have what is called the Pool of Bethesda. And these are reservoirs, so to speak. And now we can check out the zoomed-in shot so we can get a little more detail here. Okay, boom. This is actually a model. Uh, this is actually quite small. I think these are like the size of the pulpit. But it totally looks real, so you can just imagine... Uh, this is what it looked like. So, a little detail here. This is really cool. So we're told here in verse 2 that the Pool of Bethesda had five roofed colonnades, which has baffled students and archaeologists for a long time because in order to have five, these are, these are the colonnades here, yes, with the roof over them. In order to have five of those, they were looking for like a pentagon-shaped pool, because you've got five sides that they're looking for. It's like, what, what kind of pool is this? And there's even images on Google. If you look up the pool, you'll see like a pentagon-shaped pool with like columns coming up over it. Obviously, no such pool exists until this area. This is not the actual area. If you look at it now, it's just a bunch of ruins and there's like a church there. But um, they actually discovered the 
solution to this mystery was that the pool was actually uh, split up into two reservoirs, and there is a wall in the middle. So you have one, two, three, four, five roofed colonnades making up these pools. So archaeologists found that there were two basins separated by this middle wall. And so we do have our five sides. And underneath these coverings, uh, invalids, as they're called, would lay around here uh, hoping to have a chance to be healed. And I don't want to give away too much, but uh, there is your setting. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. That was really fun. Thank you guys so much in the back. Appreciate you. Uh, so there's, there's kind of a, some imagery for us to get our minds uh, where we're at. So we have these two basins, and it's called the, the Pool of Bethesda, which in Aramaic or the original language means house of mercy or house of grace. So house of mercy. Now the reason these pools were called this was probably for a few reasons. Number one, uh, the pools may have actually been used for ritual bathing. There's some historical evidence to indicate that. Number two, they may have had some therapeutic properties, kind of like uh, up in Calistoga, you know, you guys go and sit in the springs and whatever it does to your energy fields and all that good stuff, you know, it's good, good vibes, all that good stuff. And then if you have verse four in front of you, in the New King James, it says this, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, interestingly, uh, this verse is not found in some modern translations. It's not found in the ESV or the NASB um, because in the oldest manuscripts that we're able to find, uh, this verse is not contained. So, um, textual critics believe that this particular verse may have been added later uh, to provide context. This may have very well been a locally held belief that there actually was an angel that went and stirred up the pool and whoever went in first was healed, but we cannot necessarily prove that. It's uh, fairly unlikely that this verse was in the original writings. Often those who uh, did copying in ancient times some copyists would add in uh, kind of like a footnote or a reference to, um, you know, something regarding the text, and it can be mistakenly added in as not just the copyist's, uh, you know, commentary, but actually entered into the writing of the Scripture. So based on the manuscript evidence that we have, the oldest fragments of the documents that we have do not contain verse 4, but it's very interesting nonetheless. Uh, it's likely that these pools were actually fed by a nearby dam, and they were uh, controlled to maintain a certain level of depth. They were actually quite deep, which is very interesting. Um, and when the pools were fed to maintain a certain level, they would be stirred by incoming water through a channel from the nearby dam. So the water would be stirred up. Uh, and nevertheless, either way, take it for what it is, these pools had a reputation through one means or another. They had a reputation of a place of healing. Whether it really was whoever jumps in there first and just gets healed, you better hope that you do because if you can't walk and you jump into a deep pool and you don't get healed, you're in big trouble. So they had a reputation and tons of blind, crippled, paralyzed people would lay around them hoping to be healed. So that's where we are. That makes sense? Okay. So verse 5 <clears throat> One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So here, I believe we get our first clue that this may not be a truly supernatural pool of healing because we see here the text tells us this man has been crippled for 38 years and Jesus sees him there and he knows he's already been there a long time this is not his first rodeo and you would think if this plan was going to play out that it may have worked out by now right somehow in his 38 years of being crippled he has never managed to be the first one in 
Or if he has managed to be the first one in, he has not yet been healed. And so Jesus asked this man, do you want to be healed? There's a bunch of commentators on this verse and all kinds of uh, inferences on the why he asked him this and why the man may not have wanted to be healed and so on and so forth. But I think the thing to notice is, is that this is quite different from the healing that we saw in John 4, where Jesus' reputation had already been spreading, and his reputation brought the official to him, pleading with him, please heal my son, please heal my son. This time, this man has no idea who Jesus is, and it's Jesus who approaches him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And so he tells Jesus about his predicament. He says, man, I keep, I keep getting beat, right? I, I try to get in first, and someone gets in before me, or I'm about to go in, and someone cuts in line, and, you know, they're first in the pool. And so then, in response, something spectacular happens. Jesus commands him. Jesus commands the man. Verse 8, he said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So again here, like we saw in John 4, we see an instantaneous healing. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, he commands the winds, he commands the sea, he commands demons, and he commands the human body. This, my friends, is what supernatural, miraculous healing looks like. It's complete and immediate wholeness. Notice there is no faith whatsoever required on the part of the individual being healed. There's no incantations. There's no mystic remedies. Nothing. There is nothing more than an authoritative word spoken by the Son of God. Now, God does heal people in many different ways. He heals people providentially. He heals people through the prayers of the elders, through the prayers of the saints. But when we're talking about miraculous healing, this is what we see. A man who was broken, immediately made whole. And we find a similar account of Peter exercising this power in Acts 3, and there are many more. But this one is very similar to us. A man crippled from birth is begging outside the temple gate. And he sees Peter and John coming, and he asks them for alms, right? He asks them for food or money, something to help. And Acts 3, 4 says this. It says, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, right? He commanded him with authority. And he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. As we clearly see here, and in our text in John 5, this is a big one in our world, in our country particularly, faith does not always precede physical healing. In fact, as we see here, sometimes even the opposite in the biblical accounts, healings actually bring people to faith in Jesus. Interestingly enough, anecdotally, Pastor Rob reminded me of this about five times this week, uh, it was this account in John 5 that actually brought, you guys know who Benny Hinn is? Raise your hand if you do. Okay, he's, he's like one of the godfathers of the, the faith healing you know, movement. Um, if you don't know who he is, there's a plethora of YouTube videos you can check out. Anyway, we're not going to get lost in that. This passage here in John 5 was actually the passage that brought his nephew, Costi, who used to be one of the catchers, right? So when people would just be getting Waka! slayed in the spirit, Costi would be there to catch them as they fell, right, at these healing crusades. This passage actually brought him to the realization that their faith healing ministry was a global scam, it opened his eyes to when God heals someone, they are made whole immediately, right? No offerings, no music, nothing. He just does what he wants. And this ultimately led to his salvation and repentance. So I just thought I'd add that in for you guys, a little story uh, referring to this passage. Yeah, hallelujah, praise God. It's amazing. 
And so Jesus performs this amazing miracle, right? This man who hasn't walked in almost 40 years, he hops up and he grabs his mat, right? It's not a, it's not a queen-sized mattress. When he says, take up your bed, he's not rolling down the street with a, you know, a futon or something. Or it, maybe closer to a futon is more what we should imagine, but he's not got a, you know, a box spring and all that. It's, it's like a cot or a, a little, you know, a mat. You know, think of a yoga mat. So he grabs that. And he's out of there, right? Hasn't walked in almost 40 years. Boom. He's healed. He gets up and he walks. And so in light of that, one would think that this occasion would be one of awe and rejoicing and praising God like we saw in Acts 3. But not so, my friends. Not if the Jewish leaders have anything to say about it. They are truly the religious rain clouds of the day. And if you take a look at verse 9b, the second part of verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath, so now we know trouble's coming. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So we're told that this happened on the Sabbath day, and this is significant. The gospel writers do not record details just for the sake of recording details. They're there for a reason, and it's not by chance or accident that this particular healing takes place on the Sabbath. Because Jesus uses this event and the response of the Jews to make some of the most direct and profound statements about himself later. And so, we have to take a moment to consider the Sabbath. Again, not exhaustive, but this is helpful for us. We know about the Sabbath from Exodus 16, Exodus 20, Exodus 31, uh, Deuteronomy 5, and all kinds of other places in the Old Testament. We know it was meant to be a holy day of rest for each week modeled after God's uh, six days of creative work, right? So, God worked for six days followed by a day of rest. And so we are, he has modeled his command for the Sabbath after his own pattern. He has modeled it after himself. And so as we find throughout all the scriptures that God's commands ultimately reflect his own nature and his own character and his own works. And so on the Sabbath day, as God rested, the Jews were prohibited from working. Working. That's the crucial part. Working. What is work? They were prohibited from working or putting their animals to work or putting their household to work or their slaves to work. It was a God-ordained day of rest. And breaking the Sabbath, as we know, was punishable by death. So this guy is being accused of a big offense here. This isn't like just some small thing. Hey, man, you shouldn't be carrying that around. This is a big deal. We're told that keeping the Sabbath would be a sign of the Mosaic covenant between God and Israel. Just like circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, keeping the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And so this day was no small matter, and it was not to be taken lightly in any way, shape, or form. However, there is nowhere in the law a prohibition against what this man is doing. See, as we see throughout the gospel accounts, the Jews had taken the law and they had expanded it. They had added prohibitions to the Sabbath. Interestingly enough, there are still some practicing Orthodox Jews who still try to uphold these Sabbath day regulations, and you guys would not believe the absurdities that they have to go through to try and keep this thing going. Jesus came to fulfill this, but unfortunately, they have not received their Savior, and so I read an article about a guy whose apartment was on fire, and instead of calling, right, the fire department, he spent 30 minutes speaking with the rabbi on whether or not it was lawful to use the phone on the Sabbath because the electricity was technically work. And in the meantime, his house burned down and the fire spread to two neighboring apartments and burned those to a crisp as well. So you can see the level of absurdity that has to be taken into account in order to make these things happen. 
in the way that the Jewish leadership at the time had put burdens on the people. They had turned what was supposed to be a sacred and blessed day into a burden, as they so often did, taking the law of God and making it into a burdensome, burdensome thing, teaching as doctrines, as we're told, the commandments of men. And so they accuse this man of breaking the Sabbath, and look at how they respond to him. He's a crippled man who's been healed. And instead of asking, who healed you, right? How are you up walking? How are you carrying your bed? No, they don't ask him that. Their question is, who said you could do this? Who told you to take up your bed and walk? You're a rule breaker. Further revealing the hardness of their hearts. They don't care that he's been miraculously healed. They only care that he has broken their customs. They are about accusing him. They are his accuser. Who else is the accuser that we know of? Right. They are like their father, the accuser, not seeking to rejoice in God's work, not seeking to give glory to God's miraculous power, but to accuse this man. And what is his response? R.C. Sproul says he pulls an Adam here, and he says, hey, the guy who healed me, he told me to, he told me to take up my bed and walk, right? He's like, it was the woman, it was the guy, it was the healer guy. I'm not breaking the law, the guy told me, right? And so they ask him, well, who told you? And he goes, I don't know. He doesn't even know. I have no idea, right? Blame shift. Notice the contrast here, guys, between Jesus' encounter with this man and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. I think this is very helpful because we saw what happened with the Samaritan woman, and I can't help but wonder about this. See, when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman, he addressed her sin up front, and she confesses, and when he reveals his identity to her, she believes, and she goes into her village ride, and she tells everyone about what he had done. She says, can this be the Christ, the one we've been waiting for? She had faith. This man, it seems, will be very much preoccupied with his physical healing. This is what his heart most desires. He doesn't pursue Jesus after he's been healed to get more information from him, right? Even if Jesus did withdraw, we would have been like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, chasing through the crowd, hello, this guy just made me whole. He doesn't do that because he does not perceive his greater need to be, spiel, <laughs> to be healed spiritually. He's received what he was looking for, and he was healed insofar as he wanted to be healed. And Jesus withdrew into the crowd, and that was that. Interaction over. He's physically healed, but he remains faithless. But our Lord remains faithful when we remain faithless. Amen? He does graciously return to this man to address the problem of sin. Praise God, he does not leave sin unchecked. He does not leave sin uncovered. Take a look at verse 14. It says, Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So there's two ways to interpret Jesus' words here. One would be that this man is crippled. He's in this state because of a particular sin. For example, you're a thrill seeker. You love joyriding. You're doing a buck fifty on the freeway. You crash and paralyze yourself, right? That is a result of your own sinful choices and behavior. Not every paralyzed or crippled person is that way because of their own particular sin, but some are as a direct result of their choices. So he could be saying to him, look, your sin caused this. If you continue to engage in that sin, something worse is going to happen to you. Or he could be addressing him in the sense of his ultimate need for salvation, or perhaps both. Many of you are probably familiar with the passage in Luke 13, where Jesus is addressing the crowds, and they say, what about these people that died this way? Or what about these people that died that way? You know, the tower fell on them. They must have done something really bad. And he says, do you think that they were worse sinners than anyone else because they died this way? And he warns them. He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, right? 
People die in all kinds of different ways, and we should not look at that and think, oh, those guys, you know, they were sinners, they deserved it, but God, you know, he has spared me because I'm somehow better. His warning to this man is to turn from sin lest something worse should happen, right? Infinitely worse than a lifetime of begging and physical hardship is the eternal consequence of sin, the wages of sin. And so now the man has been healed, he has been warned, and he's given the opportunity now to come to Jesus, right? He could have sought after him, he could have followed him, but what does he do? It seems he is satisfied with his temporal healing. Some people call this guy the, the snitch. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we can only speculate based on what we see here. He goes to the Jews and he tells them that it was Jesus who healed him. It was Jesus who had told him to break the Sabbath according to their assessment. And he shifts the culpability away from himself onto Jesus, right? That guy, he told me to do this. He's the one that healed me. I was just sitting there trying to get in the pool and then this guy comes along and heals me and I'm innocent, right? Jesus healed me. He told me to take up my bed and walk. And this, my friends, is where this passage all comes together. So, if you've been sleeping till now, it's laser pointer time, right? Wake up. Pastor Rob told me not to point this at the people, so I'll avoid doing that. But if you've been sleeping till now, now is where this chapter, this portion of this chapter really comes together. Everything up to this point serves to bring about the discourse that Jesus is about to begin. And we'll just begin that today with verses 16 through 18. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Amen. So as promised, we see the hatred of the Jewish leaders taking shape here, moving from persecution to murderous intent, and it begins with this fact that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. In all four gospel accounts, we find instances of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. He's doing these things on purpose. Because according to their man-made rendition of the law, he was breaking the Sabbath continually, always profaning the Sabbath. And so we have two parties here. And one party is correct in their understanding of the Mosaic law, and the other is gravely mistaken. And I'll leave it up to you guys to decide which is which. But we see Jesus, by his compassion, revealing the heart of the law, the heart of God, and corrects their prideful legalism by continually doing good on the Sabbath. He asks them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And the obvious answer is yes. Jesus is fulfilling the full and true intent of the law to love God and love neighbor. The law and the prophets hang on this, love God and love neighbor. If the Jews had properly understood Moses, they would have rejoiced at this man's healing. They would have glorified the works of God on this day, and they would have come to Jesus, their promised Savior themselves, to seek healing from him, to seek true healing. But in abusing God's word and in abusing his people for their own gain, for their own reputation, they had become blind and hardened. Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus did not break the law for love, for any of you Furtick fans. Jesus never broke the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law down to the smallest detail. He came to fulfill the Sabbath, which brings us to his answer, the reason the Jews wanted to kill him, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This statement my Father is working till now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. In these eight words in the Greek, 
Jesus speaks such profound truth that there are entire libraries worth of writings dedicated to the content and implications of these eight words. Not the least of all, and most shocking and offensive to his audience, is the compound subject of his sentence. My father and I. My father and I. No Jew would dare to utter his name alongside the Father in this way. No man had the authority to speak of God this way except the Son. Any passages where you see Jesus and the Father together working is a direct claim and a direct evidence to the deity of Jesus. See, he is about to go into, again, a discourse on his authority and his relationship to the Father But in this very short summary, my father and I are working, he says all that needs to be said for the Jews to seek to put him to death. My father and I. He is saying he is in direct sonship, he is in direct partnership, and he is in equality with God the Father. And yet he remains distinct in his person. The two are both God and the two are working together. In this little phrase, the deity of Christ, the Trinitarian relationship of the Godhead, and the nature of Jesus' purposes on earth are all laid out in the open for the Jews to marvel. And on top of that, on top of that, he says, my father and I are working. We are on mission together. And this is why it's so important that this healing takes place on the Sabbath. Because as Jesus says in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is the ultimate interpreter, and he is the ultimate embodiment of the law of God. And he makes the point over and over and over that the law does not prohibit doing good on the Sabbath. To love God and love neighbor. When Moses received the law, let's put our minds back just a few thousand years, if you guys would me. When Moses received the law and Israel entered into covenant with God, they had just been released from what? From captivity, from bondage, from slavery from harsh living conditions without end in the exodus from Egypt. They receive the law of God, and he stresses the importance and centrality of the Sabbath. He makes a huge deal about the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant that they had entered, that they would rest from their labor on that day as God had done. But we know, Jesus tells us, this commandment was given for them, was given for them. This was not for God. This was not God's resting day. Not because God needed rest from his work because we know he needs nothing. But the Sabbath was given as a pattern for them that they would rest and that they might not become like their captors, the Egyptians, who treated them like animals. And even under God's law, even animals and land received rest. Rest was a crucial part of God's plan for his people. And yet, the Jews had twisted this blessing from God and created just another form of slavery, another form of bondage, bondage to man's hard-hearted rules. And so it is no wonder that when the rest giver himself comes to them, they do not recognize him. They despise him because he's breaking their rules. But they love to place heavy, exacting burdens on people and neglect the heart of God's law, right? The weightier matters, as Jesus says. Love, faith, mercy, compassion, justice. This is the heart of the law. So why did Jesus say, my father is working until now and I am working? He says this because of their grave misunderstanding. See, the creation may have been finished on the sixth day, but God was not done working, not by a long shot. 
God is always working, and we take great hope, we take great comfort, we take great rest in the fact that God is always working. If God ceases to be active for one second, this universe would cease to exist. If Jesus Christ ceased to be God working for one second, all would cease. As Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is working. God was never done working. God is the great worker. He is the only worker that truly matters. Not only does He actively sustain the entire universe by His power, but since before creation, before the world was plunged into a state of sin and rebellion and death and groaning because of our ancestors, God had already purposed His eternal work of redemption. He had already made work to be completed. Our God is not passive he is not reactive. He is not idle. He is, as we're told, the true and living God. He is the ever-working God. He is the God who does not grow weary. He does not grow tired. And He does not ever change. He was always working, and He is always working, and He always will be. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect harmony and power and glory they purposed together an eternity past to set in motion these events recorded in John's gospel. To bring about through the Father's will, through the Son's perfect obedience, and through the Spirit's power, an eternal Sabbath. An eternal Sabbath. Not one day of the week, which was a shadow of that which was to come, but an eternal rest for the people of God, secured by the work, the working of Jesus Christ. That whoever rests in his finished works also rests from his own works. Amen. Forever perfected through the perfect sacrifice of the Son. Hallelujah. It's not that there's nothing left to do, but in regard to salvation, in regard to resting, in regard to true and eternal peace and rest, there is nothing left to do. We have rest in Him. See, Jesus came to work so that we could rest. Jesus' work is what gives us rest. And He completed the work that the Father gave Him, and He completed it entirely and perfectly. He has set us free from our laboring to please God, having fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and having offered himself once for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And after making purifications from sins, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he did what? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. That's significant. Jesus sat. The work was done. At the right hand of the majesty on high, Jesus sat because the work had been finished. There was nothing left for us to complete but to look upon him and receive his free gift of salvation. To forsake our trust in our filthy works that are tainted with pride and doubt and deceit and all kinds of sinfulness and trust in his perfect works. We are truly, friends, saved by works. It's just not our works that we are saved by. We are saved by his works. He is working. He is always working. He has completed the work that he came to do. And he has been working since the world began. He became a man, and he finished the work of redemption, and even now he is working. These words ring true in this very moment. Until now, my Father is working, and I am working. He is interceding for his church. He is praying for us collectively and individually right now. He is building his church. He is drawing people to himself. He is drawing people into what he is building, what he is doing, what he is working, and he is giving life to whom he wills. 
That is what he is doing. He is still working. And until he returns, friends, it is still possible to enter into this Sabbath rest. The door remains open. By simply believing in him and trusting in his works, his perfect works, it is by his work and his work alone that we are saved, that we are healed, and that we enter into this rest of God that was prepared for us from before the foundations of the world. He purposed to love us and give his son up for us, that his son would be put to death by the hands of lawless men to bring about the greatest good that the universe has ever known. To refer back to our passage, may we be not like this man who received temporal relief and were satisfied with that to the neglect of his eternal soul, to the neglect of the opportunity to know Jesus personally, face to face. If you have not come to Christ today, come to the worker today, come to the healer today, and he will make you new. He will heal you eternally, not just from your sickness, from your physical ailments, but from your sins. If you have received him, don't neglect eternal matters for the temporal comforts of this life. There is always going to be ache and pain and sorrow and grief and discouragement. And God graciously meets us in the midst of these things. And he ministers to us. And he helps us and he perseveres us. He gives us the strength to keep going. But... Those things are always going to be there. What we need is an eternal healing. We need rest, not just in this life. We need a rest that will endure forever. He is still working. He's still working in you. He's still working in us. He is still working in this world, and he is working in your life. He is working in our life collectively, in the church. He is working. And if you are in Christ, this is the just most mind-blowing part of all, God has chosen you, you now, to participate in the work that he is doing in the world. What an amazing thing that he has made us his workers. He has made us his laborers. That he has redeemed us and he has made us a people to serve him. Unworthy servants who have been made worthy through the work of his son. Guys, even in our redeemed state, our good works are still tainted with our sinful behaviors. How many of you in here have perfect intentions when you do good things? Anybody? We got one. Praise the Lord. <laughs> you can't see behind you. Um, uh, even, even in our good works, even in our, in our greatest moments of, of just sold out and on fire and zealous for God, our works are still mingled with our own selfishness. They're still mingled with our own desire to be seen. They're still mingled with all kinds of things that lie within our hearts. But God has redeemed our works. He says, I will receive your works, not because they're worthy in of themselves, because they are clothed and they are covered with the blood and the work of Christ Jesus, and we are now acceptable to him. We are made right before him, and now we can serve him, and he has called us into this glorious work that he has been doing. You now have the privilege of laboring not to earn rest, but because you have rest, you now have the opportunity to usher others into that rest through the gospel. That is our great calling. That is our great joy to take this rest that we have received, this rest that has been finished and accomplished and given to us as a free gift, and go to the world, go to our brothers and sisters and say, rest in Jesus. He is the only rest. Now we get to encourage one another in the body to remain in that rest, cling to that rest, hold fast to that rest. Do not depart from that rest. Do not put yourself back under a yoke of law. You have been set free from the law. Jesus has given you rest and rest eternal. Amen.
Give Him glory. Give Him praise. He is worthy. He is the great worker. He is working even until now. And next week we'll get to see even more of the majesty of the work that He is participating in alongside the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have revealed your truth and your great mysteries to fools like us. God, thank you that you have chosen weak, lost, and helpless people to participate in your glorious work of redemption. God, we are so unworthy of you. We cannot comprehend the depth of our wretchedness. And yet, you still purposed to send your Son to purchase us for yourself. You purposed that he would shed his precious blood on the cross, that he would accomplish the work of salvation, and you've applied that to us by your gracious mercy, Lord. We sit here as a people who struggle and doubt and sin, and yet you have received us, Lord. You receive our works. You've clothed us in Christ's righteousness, and you have unified us with him, forever to be joined to the Son of God, impossible to be separated from him and the love of God that is in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one that has worked this all. You are the true worker, God. You have created this world and everything in it, and everything is for you. And you have brought about your plans. You've made your will to pass. And now because of that, we have rest. We have entered into the true Sabbath that you planned for your beloved, for your bride. And we thank you, God, that we can rest from trying to please you. That you are pleased with us because we are trusting in your Son to save us. And I pray that you would remind us afresh this morning that you are pleased, that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that the law of God has been satisfied, that its righteous requirements have been satisfied, and that we stand perfected before you because of the sacrifice of your Son. We give you all glory, God. It is you who is working in us and through us to accomplish your will. We are in awe of you, Lord. You are everything to us. We give you thanks this morning, and I pray for everyone in this room, Father, that they would take heart in the rest that is in Christ Jesus, that they would stop their striving and their wrestling, God, and enjoy the Sabbath rest that you have given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.